The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Suburban Easter podcast with me, Paul McGinn from the University of Western Australia. In this episode, the focus is on politics and sex. The focus, however, is not on the sexual proclivities of politicians. Rather, my focus is on the political proclivities of Fiona Patton, leader of the political party formerly known as the Australian Sex Party and now known as Reason Australia. Fiona is a member of the Legislative Council or Upper House in the Victorian State Parliament and represents the Northern Metropolitan Region in Melbourne. I chatted with Fiona on a recent trip to Melbourne. We met on the steps of the Victorian State Parliament where Fiona had been sitting in on hearings all day. We then walked to the Kelvin Club, a private members club established in 1865 and one of the few clubs that has a mixed gender membership. We chatted about why Fiona decided to get into formal politics, the evolution of the Australian Sex Party, her major policy successes and her future plans. So sit back, relax and come join me for episode 2 of the Suburbanista podcast, The Voice of Reason. Okay, so we're here at the Kelvin Club in Melbourne for the Suburbanista podcast and I'm here with Fiona Patton. For the listeners, if you don't know Fiona, which would be hard, um, particularly if you live in Victoria or if you live in Melbourne, but in the event that the listeners don't know who Fiona is, Fiona is a democratically elected member of the Victorian Parliament. She entered Parliament uh, as the member for what was then called the Australian Sex Party and what is now called the Reason Party. So this podcast, I'm going to explore with Fiona basically I suppose her career into politics she's been in politics now in the parliament for entering her fourth year um, and I'm going to kind of explore issues to do with gender issues to do with sexuality and sex issues to do with policy making and the politics of the Victorian parliament welcome Fiona thank you thank you it's an absolute pleasure to uh, be able to do this interview with you um, it's nice to see you again we have met at a number of times yeah, and various things Fiona I'm getting into podcasting I'm interested in urban politics and as I said, you you've been in Parliament now for four years. Are you in your you're in your, my fourth year? You're in your yeah. fourth year. I want to take you back before you get into Parliament. Can you give us a kind of sketch as to why you thought it was a good idea to enter into formal politics? Yeah, it's it's, it's actually a good question and. Um probably alcohol had a bit to do with it. Uh, however, no, I mean, as you know, I've been working as a lobbyist for the adult industry, and what we were finding, and this was in the around 2010, we were finding that community attitudes were going one way and government policy was going in completely the opposite direction. And whether that was around marriage equality or around censorship or around uh, gender equality or a whole range of issues. So in the end, we thought, 
you know what, if we can't beat them with community attitude, research, evidence, and a whole range of issues, then let's take these issues to the polling booth and let's try and force these issues and show that these issues are important to the Australian, the Australian public. When, when was the Australian Sex Party conceived? It was conceived in 2009 and we were, we became, we really became a party in 2010, so nearly, yeah, nearly eight years ago. And, you know, I, I must say, I never thought I would go into politics having had seen friends go in and, you know, I used to think, well, you just sell your soul at the door, don't you, as you enter in. But that's if you go into a, a political party. A, main, a mainstream political Yeah, you know, we saw that with Peter Garrett, where there was the biggest anti-nuclear campaigner signing off on nuclear facilities. Yeah. And I saw that with, with other friends um, who's, who's probably, their, yeah, their, they, they had to put their conscience to one side. So setting up your own party, that you don't have to worry so much about that. And then calling yourself the sex party, well, uh, people's expectations of you are, are, are somewhat skewed. Or <laughs> I think lots of people will, and you've probably had this question yourself, mm -hmm. you know, you said, why the sex party? I mean, yeah. why that name? Look, you know, it was, um, we had always known that if we were to set up a minor party, it was going to be difficult. And to get, to get heard uh, and to get some, some, some air in the political debate between the major parties when it really is um, a kind of an us and them and it's the, the media focuses on that really two-party system. So we needed to kind of get attention and without a great deal of funding, uh, we had no big unions to back us, no big business to back us. Calling yourself the sex party was certainly going to, to gather it, gain draw, attention. Draw the gears of the media and the public. Uh, that's in right. Sense. That's okay. right. And I think that um, strategy was actually a successful strategy. I mean, j jumping forward a little bit, so, I mean, the party's now changed. It's, yeah. Was, was that on your agenda way back in 2009? Had you kind of a vision, a little seed in your mind that we'll go sex party first and then if we do well, we'll morph and blossom into something yeah. kind of di the same but different? Probably not. Probably we didn't have quite that foresight. We, we wanted to get someone elected to provide a voice for the issues. And that was probably as far as our forward thinking had gone. I think we knew we wouldn't be changing the curtains in the lodge anytime soon. But being elected does change things. And I think that was something we didn't probably expect, that, that all of a sudden, you, you're not there just for your policies. You're there to, to to vote on a whole range of issues, and you are you are creating positions on a whole range of issues. And and given the makeup of the parliament, as it were, we were relatively successful in getting our own issues onto the agenda and actually into law. And I got a lot of people last year and the year before saying, "I think you've grown up now." And um, I think that the sex party does not show the maturity that, that the party had developed in the way it was working with governments and the way it was um, getting, getting things through. So do you think there was a, I mean, with, with the name and your time in office, and mm. obviously your 
performance in in the parliament and your your political nice. Um, were people kind of still, I don't know, what's the word, kind of suspicious, not suspicious, but kind of like the sex party? I mean, yeah. did they not take you seriously or did they think it was still kind of something like juvenile or, there, or immature people, yeah. or like a teenager? That's right. I think people took us as, as childish or not even, probably just, um, you know, college school rabble rousers and certainly on the on the day of my uh, inauguration so the day that you you sort of sign uh, you know take the oath of, of office there was there was a guy texting a, a guy in my parliament one of my colleagues texting one of his mates up in the gallery saying as I was going up to take the oath and they're going oh I thought you'd take the oath on a bunch of vibrators horror horror and then um, and then when I sat down, they were saying things like, oh, I thought it looked like a wet ice cream when she stood up, like really childish shit. Yeah. What they didn't know is that I had a mate behind them who could see all the text messages, so, and he actually took a photo, so. <laughs> so there was that, and in fact, I, you know, there was a number of times when yeah, people thought it was really funny, and I'd, I'd open my the little drawer under my chair in Parliament, and there'd be condoms in there. Yeah. You know, which someone thought was really humorous, um, and maybe I did need that sort of protection. But after a while, that that waned. That has died down. Yeah. Um, so you hold the seat. Is it North Metropolitan? Is that the the region? Yeah. Okay. So if you, I mean, it's, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about? The communities that you yeah. and the area that you represent. It's about as urban as you can get. Right. So North Metropolitan represents the CBD of Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, everything north of the Yarra. So the CBD, we're we're in my land right now. Okay. Uh, and right to the sort of the peri-urban areas of, of Melbourne, so the outskirts right. of, of Melbourne. So, so urban to suburban, basically. Suburban that, to, okay. yeah, to, to those really high-growth suburban areas. Right, okay. Uh, where, you know, in, in one of my local regions, we're seeing 60 new housing applications every week, as well as 60 that, new babies born in the local hospital every week. Is that Whittlesea? Whittlesea? Yeah, Whittlesea and Hume. That's right. Well done. You're like a local. <laughs> So that, I mean, that's fascinating. So I mean, that it's this kind of major kind yeah. of area. So that's right. So we've so I've got that kind of inner inner city suburban regions, and I I pretty much represent almost all of them. And then you've got the sort of the older suburbs that are being gentrified, and you know as housing prices go madder and madder, that gentrification is going further and further and further from the CBD. Uh, yeah, but right up to as you said, Whittlesea to those new and, suburbs. And was that did you deliberately target that season yeah. in, in your research? To think about you know I want to be a politician. Yeah. Where where where's my best? I mean, you must say yeah. where's my best chance yeah. of kind of getting in. That that's right, and 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 I probably probably more importantly, it was where I lived. Right. Um, unlike most politicians, I actually did run in the seat that I live in. Uh, but we did find that 
you know, I mean, the sex parties vote is really small and we didn't have, you know, money to do polling and yeah. those sorts of things. But the research that we were able to do and that we could afford to do did show that, yeah, we had pockets of voters in the inner city, but also in those sort of, not quite the fringe, but those gentrifying suburbs. You come from a background, as you said earlier, have been involved in kind of lobbying for the adult industry, basically, yes. and that covers all sorts of areas. How were you received into the parliament with your fellow parliamentarians knowing this kind of background? Yeah. You know, in terms of, I mean, you've got a sex party as the name, yeah. political party, and then you have this fascinating mm. history and involvement with you know, let's call it the sex industry for one of a better mm. word, or the adult mm. industry. How was, how was, how did that go down? See, that was really interesting, Paul. We, um, you know, because I'd actually been around Parliament for nearly 20 years before I was elected, so I had been lobbying these people, um, the, particularly some of the older members in Parliament. You know, I, I kind of go back and find letters that they'd written to me back in 1995, you know, about X-rated videos and, or something. And so I, I actually knew my way around, and then certainly from a legislative perspective, you know, I had worked on legislation, I had lobbied for amendments to bills, I had worked in that area, so I was somewhat familiar uh, with the parliamentary process, but also with the people. Yeah. And because the major parties, most, you know, the trajectory to parliament is via a local member's office, then via a you probably work in a minister's office, and then you get pre-selection. So a lot of the people that were elected with me were the people that were writing the letters to me on behalf of their ministerial bosses. So it, there was a familiarity with me. Yeah. And in actual fact, people knew who kind of knew who I was in, in, in as a lobbyist rather than as the sex party. And I think that actually really helped because yeah. Eros even though it was representing an adult industry, we actually had a very, we were very professional in the way that we approached the work that we were doing and whether that was on planning decisions or censorship decisions or legislation decisions. You know, we we operated like any other industry like associ any other association. That's right. So being a member of the sex party, having a sex industry background is just obviously one of your identities coming into the parliament. Being a woman coming into the department, mm. was that more or less of an issue relative to your sex industry yeah. kind of identity? You know, in, in Victoria, and you know, and I have to give credit to to the Labor Party and to Emily's List. They have actually done a very good job in putting women candidates into winnable seats. So in my in my house. 40% of the people in that house are female. Right. And so... Which is... The, unusual. So that's the, the upper house. Yeah. So yeah. The, that's that is pretty high. It, it is. Yeah. It's, I think it's probably one of the highest yeah. in, in the country, uh, possibly with the exception of places like Canberra, ACT. Yeah. But when you look at the Liberal Party, very few women. Yes. And it's... I mean, it's just so disappointing. We see that in our federal parliament. You know, the 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 number of women is still desperately small. Yeah, I think I think in the federal parliament it's about twenty eight percent. Is it? In House of Reps? Yeah. It's um, about twenty eight percent. 
it increases female representation increases in the Senate. Yes. So you, it's it's a really difficult thing, and I know even from our party, you know, we're we're actually just about to put out nominations, up calling for nominations for the Victorian election, and I know that the vast majority of people who nominate will be male. And there's something about it that, yeah. that men feel that they, it's that confidence that, yeah, I can do that, I'd like to do that, where women don't necessarily feel that they've got the confidence all the time to do it. Do you, ha do you have a quota system? I mean, you're only no, we don't. In a minor party, we don't have a quota system, but our goal is that we would, we would run at 50%. And I, I guess there, there may be some positive discrimination there. Uh, however, I mean, as far as I know, in Australia, I am the first female to establish my own political party and be elected. There was the Women's Party, they didn't get anyone elected. Uh, you have Pauline Hanson, who's the leader of One Nation, but she didn't form One Nation. So, from my understanding is I'm the only person... Both the creator... The creator and actually representing that party in, in the... Yeah. We tend to think of politics on a spectrum from left to right. Yeah. Stop it. Stop thinking that way. Okay. It's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how would you describe the the reason part of being basically? What's your so I, I just political think that, yeah, I, I'll I use the word standpoint deliberately yeah. because it moves away from just a single yeah. a single thing. I, I just think it's um it's kind of obsolete the, the that binary and that, that single axis. You know, I actually think we're we're ready for a third axis that you know and I think we've we've seen it on some of the like the uh, election compasses that you, you see now that, that you, you Which quadrant are you in? Which you know? quadrant, that's yeah. right. And I and I think even you could be even three dimensional in that you could actually put a you don't have to have just X, Y, you could actually have a Z yeah. uh, a, a Z axis in that as well. So I feel like, you know, we're obviously we're socially progressive and that very often is linked to being left, but we're born out of small business. Yeah. We, I think, have a very considered approach. Being born out of small business, it's like, show me the money. Yeah. You know, if, if you want to do this, show me how we're going to afford to do that. So, which is not a leftist, which would not be seen as being in the left no, in well, that way. I mean, so, typically the, the Liberal Party is described itself as the party of, of small businesses yeah. or of business. I like um, to think we're the real Liberal Party, okay. you know, but you know, I wanted to call ourselves the Liberal Party, but that, that name was taken. Some, yeah, some that's right. Some you some know. Know. So you've been in Parliament for three years and you've worked here. What's been your kind of biggest policy successes for you so far? And you can do that chronologically. Yeah, that's... Talking to me in terms of significance first. That's right. I mean, look, I went in there and and I, I always surprised myself in in this that, that over that campaign in 2000, for the 2014 election, you know, I had policies around reproductive services, around abortion, I had policies around censorship, around gender equality, around marriage equality around a, a range of business things uh, and and also around I guess civil libertarian policies and one of them was voluntary assisted dying and when I was elected and there was a 
the media, sort of informal media conference started, they asked me what the first thing I wanted to do, and I said, the first thing I want to do is get voluntary assisted dying up. And we did last year, and I got the inquiry up to start that process in 2015, so the year, my first year. Yeah. I was on the committee that, that created the framework, created the recommendations, did the community consultation that created the framework for the legislation that passed late last year. So I'd have to say that's kind of a highlight, yeah. but... Did, did you imagine, though, that we'd get through? No. I, I, it, it, I mean, it's a perennial issue here in Australia. I mean, yeah. I, I know from when I lived in the UK, Philip Nietzsche's kind of campaign yeah. around euthanasia, and I know that the Northern Territory had passed it, and then it, the federal government came in rank. So, so it's been a, Australia was doing kind of cutting edge policy mm. things, mm. you know, at one level of government and stuff. And then you've come in and you've got this through. That's right. Did you just. When I said that, they immediately asked the Premier what he thought about that, and he immediately said, absolutely no way. That is not going to happen under my watch. But he said that quite a lot uh, in a lot of my policies, whether that's injecting centres or safe access zones around abortion clinics or Uber. You know. There's a political lesson here, isn't there? Never say never. That's right, exactly. I mean, those various things that you yeah. I mean, they are contentious issues, yeah. you know, in, in the mainstream. How have you managed to do this? Because, I mean, yeah. if I be blunt with you, you're one person That's right. in the parliament. So so where does the, where does the power yeah. rest? How do you exercise and, and flex those muscles, basically, to get your agenda through? Yeah, I, I, th I mean, it's an interesting question, and it's one I you know, sometimes wonder. But how it happened, but I think representing the adult industry, you know, that's not an easy task. And so to to lobby and convince members of parliament around um, legislative reform in that area is not an easy task. So you you need to be collaborative. You don't you don't work with just one party. You you try and you try and bring a consensus forward. And that was always our yeah that was always our hope. And we always knew that we could never get most of the policies of the of the adult industry through if they weren't bipartisan. Yeah. So I was very used to kind of collaborating and understanding that I needed bipartisan support for anything I did. And that was the approach that I took to everything I did. It was like, well, how would we do this? How would we run this campaign? How would we get community support? How would we get that that community attitude? How would we get that research? How would we present that to our members of parliament? So I, I used the same tools that I used when you were a lobbyist? When I was and a lobbyist yeah. in there. And plus I had this other, you know, unbelievable tool that the government needed my vote. <laughs> Which, so like, another political lesson here is the power of one, basically, in right. a sense. That's because right. your parliament here is fairly, obviously, fairly evenly split between the two majors. Is that, yes. You know? So in, in the upper house, which has 40 members, 
uh, the government has 14 of those seats right. and they need 21 votes. Okay. So they need six other votes. Yeah. Now, quite often they'll get the coalition, which has 16 votes. Yeah. And the co if it's a law and order issue, you won't get any complaint from the coalition. There's five Greens in there and then there's five... Minority, minority, small parties. Small parties right. So if they if they can't get the opposition to support yeah. them, they'll need the the Greens and at least two of the crossbench. So I've always worked with the government in that regard. So it's it's not that I horse trade, but I also understand that. I, I can that the government sometimes does have a mandate and that I'm not there to stymie that. I'm there to to promote and achieve my goals and 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 allow the government to achieve theirs. And I think it's been that, that type of relationship right. that I've been able to yep. form that means that I have everyone's mobile phone numbers. That it means I can speak to a minister easily and and can try and convince them on an issue. And when you're looking at things like, just for example, when you looked at, well, the voluntary assisted dying, I mean, that had to be bipartisan. Yeah. And that committee that we worked really hard to achieve that and we got, you know, a bipartisan report. There was some minority uh, reports on that, but six out of the eight yeah. supported it. When, when, when. Yeah. Okay. Probably when we started the process, I would say that there was four out of the eight that were inclined to support it. So you still needed to get... Yeah. We, yeah. Some of them across. That's right. Basically. And then with something like safe access zones... So this is around abortion. And this is around abortion clinics to stop okay. people harassing... Uh, largely women and their families going into these clinics to get that it was interesting i i collaborated with all the women and we had cross party meetings very early on in the term that was that was probably assisted by the fact that we had the first anti-abortion campaigner who from the australian conservatives uh, in there who was wanting to turn the tide back on abortion so the women kind of got together and went we got to stop that, and then also, why wouldn't we support what Fiona wants to do in getting these safe yeah. access zones around? Under forty so, percent female representation. That's right. You've got a you've got a critical mass to start off yeah. that way. Yeah. You've just got then a look across the the gendered line to your male colleagues yeah. and say, okay, can we get yeah. can we get some of these? Yeah. And the vast across. majority of them are pretty good on yeah. Uh, on, 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 on the on women's reproductive rights. So that, that's euthanasia and abortion. Mm. So what other, have there been other kind of one or two other major so areas that have kind of been yeah. personally satisfying and po yeah. you know, politically satisfying? Uh, well, sorry, I was, I was looking at a photo um, just, just yesterday for another reason, and it was myself standing with the Premier, the Planning Minister, the Police Minister, the Emergency Services Minister, the Mental Health Minister, and the Chief police commissioner and it was a photo of us and someone had put a caption is what the hell is she doing there and it was a press conference around the supervised injecting center and and i had pushed for this supervised injecting facility uh, and pushed for the legislation you don't like taking easy issues do you <laughs> Uh, well, 
I have to say, I did get e-petitions up. Yeah. Um, we hadn't had online petitions in the parliament ever. Yeah. Um, so I, that was actually a low-hanging fruit, which, but one of the very few, I have to say. Just, just flipping my question around about kind of, I suppose, successes, mm. have there been things where you've kind of things that you didn't get through that you were kind of dis disappointments? No, I, I, I have to, there's, there's a couple and they, they still bite me now or, or affect me now and then, then one was around medicinal cannabis. So here was our state saying we're going to do all these great things and in actual fact we've done bugger all. We've you know, allowed a small cohort of children with intractable epilepsy to import a cannabinoid substance. We have not allowed the people who, we have not allowed adults who need this substance to access it. And, and I tried very hard to broaden the cohort initially to to make it available to to adults in, in, in with various symptoms and was unsuccessful in that. I believe I'm putting up some legislation this year which will be around reviewing the tax status of religious organisations. I'm not entirely optimistic I'm going to get that one through. Right. But I'm going to start the conversation. And just going back to the to the marijuana uh, mm. legalisation or decriminalisation. I mean, it's interesting. I've just come back from from the states there recently. Yep. California and Nevada have both legalised legal, personal use. Legalised yeah. cannabis in there. And there, I mean, from speaking to people and from reading some of the press, they were looking to Colorado, basically, mm. as a model for this. Mm. And the model was really one around tax revenue. Yeah. You know, in terms of yep. budget, budgetary matters, the state of Colorado has reaped tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, basically, from... This, mm. You know, the, the controlled, yeah. legalised sale of That's marijuana. right. That's right. Did, did that come into your argument? In, in uh, not in that. Not not in uh, regards medicinal. to not in regards to medicinal. However, I did I did get the I did get the um I, I get two opportunities to lead debate each year, and and one of them I used to debate legalising cannabis, um, which was a. A terrific debate. I lost. You know, the Greens supported my motion. Um, nobody else did. So it was a, went down 34 to six. But I did for the first time in Parliament. I think anywhere ever in Australia, we debated for two hours legalising cannabis. I've now got a major drugs joint house drugs inquiry finalised, and we're, we'll be reporting in March this year. Uh, around this and and we, we that that committee went to Colorado we went to California uh, last year and spoke to to the government about what that was going to look like for, for for California. We met with the government in Colorado and and the industry and looked at what it looked like there. We went to Canada because Canada comes on board on one July with, right. okay. with the legalisation of cannabis. So I suspect this committee may make some brave recommendations. Well, I don't think they're brave, but they'll call them brave. Uh, I don't necessarily think in an election year I'm going to have a a premier standing up <laughs> supporting the recommendations but the, 
the evidence that we're seeing from the states is that it works and it takes it out of the criminal's hands. You know, so all of a sudden, when you think about the, the illicit drug that more people use than any other drug is cannabis and it's sold by criminal organisations, if you can take that revenue, and in Victoria we estimated at $1.1 billion, if you can take that revenue out of organised crime and tax it, then that's a hell of a lot of roads and that's a lot of schools and that's a lot of public transport that we could be investing in. I just want to turn to you, let's come back here, how does a state parliamentarian engage with their you know, how, yeah. how, how do you do it? I mean, do you have the surgeries and, you know, do you, do you go to sausage sizzles and other kind of events? And, you know, I mean, how do you know what the pulse is oh my God. the people I, that you, I go to the opening of an envelope, really. I guess, you know. <laughs> I think I've got an envelope. Yes, I'll be there. No, it's uh, it's very um, yeah, it's it's something that I I uh, it's very important for me. However, I'm an upper house member, yeah. and and I represent 500,000 constituents. Normally, you know, for the major parties, they then got eight lower house members who can do a lot of that work. Uh, I have to say, if a constituent comes to see me with an issue, that generally means that they've been to see their federal local member, their lower house local member. The, the local councillor. Um, I am the the. My office is the place of last resort for for a lot of issues. But I do try and get out there, and I, you know, and I do have a very open door. And because I've been outspoken on lots of issues, I I think people kind of think that that I you know, I'm I'm a, a great place to start sometimes on on difficult issues but it's an incredibly diverse uh, electorate yeah. it's you know it's got a lot of new Australians it's got a lot of new citizens a lot of immigrants asylum seekers it, it's got a very diverse it's just an incredibly wonderfully diverse area it's growing so it's got those 60 yeah 60 babies a week in Whittlesey so it's so it's got the challenges of of that growth which yeah. means I need to represent present them for, for on public transport issues, on infrastructure issues, so important. And just on that, I mean, out of the 11 lower house seats that sit in my upper house, up until recently, they were all safe Labor seats, which meant the Liberals didn't give a stuff about them, and Labor didn't really need to focus on them either because they were safe seats. And I, so I think being it's it's actually it's a, a really interesting electorate to, to yeah. represent. That change has happened. I mean, particularly since you were first first came in the office, yeah. and you're now in your last year, so you. I presume you're you're gearing up for re-election. I am. So, I am gearing up so, for re-election. Without giving the game away this year, yeah. your electorate's very different, presumably, from what it was when you first yes. entered. You know, into the parliament. What's the what's the game plan in very kind of simple broad terms for this? This time. Yeah, I mean, like get everyone to like me, um, <laughs> and and therefore vote for me. Yeah, that, that's probably a, a little bit um, yeah, optimistic. 
but I I think I've been a pretty grounded person and I haven't yeah I haven't taken myself too seriously so I but I have got things done so yeah. I've achieved stuff so I've so I've, got a track record. I've got a track record I mean in like even just things like Uber like we would not have Uber legislation in Victoria had I not introduced the first Uber bill or ride sharing ride sharing bill into Victoria and forced the government to, to take that on so I, I, I think and, and also you know the sex party didn't didn't hurt in picking up media so and I've found that but since I've changed the name it's been remarkable like people who would never interview me now have me on their show regularly you're gearing up and, and getting ready for the end yeah. of the year when you're Olympic and stuff, but you've, you're at this kind of interesting um, intersection in the sense mm. that bye-bye Australian sex party, hello reason party. Absolutely. Coming back to my earlier question about how did people kind of perceive and treat you when you were in Australian sex party? How are you being treated yeah. now as the reason party? I... So many people, and, and because because I'm on you know every committee, so I'm I get to meet envelopes. Yeah, I get to meet lots of yeah lots of envelopes to open or to attend yeah, the opening yeah. of. So I, I do get to meet a really diverse range of people, and you know it's a lot of them I, I found particularly in 2016 I think when people sort of began to start taking notice that I was actually achieving things, were saying please change your name, please change your name. Okay, so you were getting the into outside pressure. Outside pressure. Outside pressure. Without a doubt. Yeah. And and we saw that the sex party membership, despite our achievements, yeah. it was it was plateauing. Right. Whether it's membership or support, financial support or whatever, uh, was plateauing. So the change of the name has been has really given us a little bit of a boost. However, we've got a really hard job now to uh, to get people to understand who Reason is, what we stand for, and and that that is going to be a really big task for this year to do that. And we want to grow, so it's you know we want to be getting two or three people elected. In this in this election, you know, so our aspirate, you know, so our, our targets are a lot yeah. higher. The name reason party. You have a lot of minor parties name themselves after their leaders and stuff. Like, where did reason come from, and and what are you what are you conveying as reason? What's the? It, it's a good question, Paul, because we um it, we were looking at what was happening overseas, and certainly during my time, we've we've seen Trump, but we've also seen Macron, and we've also seen Trudeau. Uh, be elected in that time and and I think when you look at something like um, En Marche in, in France and Podemos in, in, in Spain we've seen it, it's been more of a movement than, than a party and I think I hope that's what we can convey with reason and in doing that we've, we've started talking to the other minor parties so whether it's the arts party or the cyclist party or the science party or those any number of those small parties yeah. that um, the electoral reform that the Greens and the Loops put through federally uh, to knock out the small parties, we need to join forces. Yeah. So we need to come under one umbrella 
to successfully get representation. So calling it Reason was about uh, creating that, that vehicle for a whole range of people to get behind and so it's a, a unification kind of a, yeah, a and unity ticket of some kind that's right and i'm not sure that we've articulated that well enough yet but we will yeah. and certainly we've you know we went into formal negotiations with the cyclist party immediately there's the voluntary euthanasia party that we're talking with the arts party so i think you know it, over the next couple of months we will we'll do that and and, and then it's about telling that story of that reason is not sex party renamed. It's, yeah. it's actually something quite different. There is a, an evolutionary change. Yeah, that's what you're hoping to convey. Exactly, and I think it's about bringing a diverse range of people who've been disengaged from politics and disengaged from the system because the system has been has disengaged from them. You know, the major parties don't speak to the public, they speak to each other. And so I think this is, this is you know, it's very lofty and from trying to set up, you know, the sex party to, you know, with eight people around a table and around my dining room tables, you know, spilling wine on things to saying we want to set up some movement that can, can affect real change and, and create a, a, a voice that is that is closer to the people and I and I don't, I don't like using the word grassroots but I think closer to the people and I you know technology enables us to do that as well technology has changed the way we work with people you know we create our own tribes online you know we, yeah. we find our people yeah. and I, I hope that that's what we can do okay bringing things to a close what are the big things that this year holds for you what's your priority kind of legislative things and and anything else that's kind of kind of going to be important for you for this year it's going to be important for me to to run a great campaign that will not only hopefully get me re-elected but will get others elected with me and that we will go into next year with with three or four of us sitting in, in Parliament. In the and Victorian Parliament? In the Victorian Parliament for this year. I think people have asked us to look at other, other states and I just don't think we're ready this year. Yeah. I think that would be stretching ourselves even more than we're already stretched. So there's that. Uh, my drugs inquiry uh, report comes down this, this year, uh, next month. So I would hope that I will be campaigning to, to, to bring community support for what we're suggesting, which is a refocus of drugs uh, from a criminal focus to a health focus. Yeah, health focus, right. Uh, and, of course, I'll be introducing legislation in the next month or two around rethinking how we provide tax exemptions to religious institutions whose only reason for existence is the advancement of religion. And frankly, when you look at the census, if their only reason for advancement of religion, they're not doing a bloody good job, are they? And, and given, certainly given, you know, the, the Royal Commission, uh, I think people want to see a greater transparency in these organisations that have betrayed us and betrayed our trust and we have trusted them to you know to the point that we don't tax them that we don't ask for any transparency in their their commercial and financial arrangements it, it, and then they tell us that they've got no money and can't afford to pay compensation to all the people that they've abused yet 
we know that they sit on vast wealth and yes yeah, so I, I did see the, the age report just mm, this week basically yeah. kind of highlighting yeah. the extent of the wealth that yeah and that was a, it was an interesting consequence and it's a funny thing that we set up a fire services levy in Victoria and it was a tax a levy but up until that fire services levy which everyone has to pay no one had ever valued uh, religious land no one had ever valued their land because they didn't pay land tax they didn't pay stamp duty so what was the point of valuing their land now all of a sudden because of this fire services levy um, because of the fire services levy all of a sudden we got evaluation on their land first time ever it's all an unintended outcome that's right from another policy yeah yeah well Fiona it's been a pleasure having a chat with you about uh, politics here in Victoria, the evolution of the sex party, the Australian <laughs> sex party to, to the reason party. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for letting me into the, um, or bringing me along to the Kelvin Club. Yeah, it's a wonderful crusty old place, isn't it? <laughs>